We're starting today a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Now, if you start counting from now to the end of the summer, you'll discover there's 11 weeks. Therefore, we needed to do or wanted to do an introduction. And so today is the introduction to the Ten Commandments, also done in light of it being Father's Day. Whenever I introduce the Ten Commandments, I always tend to introduce it the same way. I take the text that Jesus was asked by a Pharisee, what's the greatest commandment? Now, it's obviously, when that was being done, that was a trick question. You see, now, no matter how Jesus was going to answer that question, people are going to say, oh, so you don't think this was important. Listen in Matthew 22, verses 36 through 39, when Jesus is asked that question, how he answers. Jesus says to the gentleman who asked him the question, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, interestingly with Jesus, when he answered that question, he found a way of summarizing the Ten Commandments. You see, the first four commandments are all about loving God. Have no God but God. Have no idols. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And also, don't use God's name in vain. That's all about how we love and honor God in our life. The last six commandments are all about loving our neighbor. That's what each one is. Whether it be do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not bear false witness, even don't covet and want that which belongs to someone else. All of the commandments, therefore, get summarized in those two statements. However, the question still has always arisen for me, what does it mean to love God and what does it mean to love other people? We make a lot of assumptions and a lot of times I think when I preach this text, I just assume that people know what that means. But this time when I went back and I looked at this passage, I realized that historically theologians and biblical scholars have actually argued over that very question. What does it mean to love God? Some people go as simple as saying, well, it just means to follow certain commandments. Problem with that is then you're just checking off boxes. Like, I love my family, and I know we're going to do something for Father's Day today, but if they're just doing that to check off a box, that's not love, that's just checking off a box. Same thing with our kids. If the only reason you do something with the kids, you go, okay, as a dad, I have to do this, or I've done that, I'll move on. That is not love. That's checking off a box. So there's a deeper, more profound question, and how do we see and how do we understand what it means to love God and love other people? Augustine, one of the early theologians of the church, says that to love God means to enjoy fellowship with God. That makes sense. Spending time alone. I have asked people this week, what do you you think of when you think of loving God? And people said, well, that's one of the ways in which they know they love God, because they'll go for a walk and just be alone with God, or or having a quiet time, just a time when everything else is shut off, and they're just aware that they're enjoying time with God. Now, that sounds great, but good old Martin Luther argued with that and said, no, that's not what loving God is at all. What loving God is is following certain rules. So there again, you start realizing people looked at it different ways. Soren Kierkegaard, the Dutch philosopher and theologian, said if we're talking about love and we're talking about loving other people, looking at this text, That's a matter of self-sacrifice. You can't love someone else without giving something up. Otherwise, it's not love. Maybe you 
have a gift. You buy something for someone. That can be an expression of love. Maybe you spend time with someone. That's where we get into this concept of the five love languages, understanding the ways in which people receive love. But all of them require self-sacrifice, giving up time, giving up an afternoon, giving up something of myself for someone else. Martin Luther said, you know, love of self is really kind of out of place in our world because all human beings do is think about themselves anyhow. Think about that. Don't we tell that to high school kids? High school kids walk into a room and they're really uncomfortable and they say, everybody's thinking about me. And we say, no, they're not. They're all thinking about themselves. Because that's what human beings do. So Martin Luther looked again at this text and he said, what Jesus is really doing is pointing out that we think too much of ourselves and so now we need to start thinking of other people the way we think about ourselves. And so he's actually taking something negative in our life and turning it around. What does it mean to love? The big idea today is that loving God and loving people must be real for you. Hear that loud and clear. It's not checking off a box and having Pastor Stan give you the three ways to love somebody, doing it and saying, now I'm, I'm good for the rest of the day, but to make it real for you. The only way I know to do that is by telling stories and, and looking at a text like this and seeing how I've seen it lived out in other people's lives. Haven't we all had that experience where we've seen someone who loves God and we know they love God and their testimony is profound, not that they get it right, but that they demonstrate it. Even the same thing when we're loved. If you're honest with people who have loved you, none of them have been perfect. If you have a perfect person who's loved you perfectly, there's something wrong with you because you haven't looked at that person deep enough and hard enough because none of us get loved perfectly. None of us is perfect on how we treat others. Amen? I didn't get a loud enough amen. None of us is perfect in how we treat others, amen? amen? We're not. Nor are others perfect in how they treat us and how they love us. Because it's a work in progress and that's why there's grace and that's why Jesus came into this world to give his life for us. Because we want to avoid legalism and we want it to become relationship. And that's why as I thought about this text and I thought about where I've really de seen love demonstrated, it got me thinking about my own dad, who's been dead 20 years. And the stuff I learned from him. So my dad was a person who loved Jesus and loved others. And sometimes I'll kind of use a unifying theme to, to come back to for illustrations. And today I'd like to take this text and not preach about my dad. And if you hear a sermon about my dad, you've missed the point. But rather to say... What are the lessons I learned from my father on how to love God and love people? Hear the difference? My dad was an imperfect person. I knew his flaws as well as anybody in our life. And sometimes people would see things that he would do wrong. And they were surprised because they were like, oh, Reverend Cushing, I held him in a different state of esteem. And the rest of us would say, well, you just got to live with him. We saw all those things. And we loved him anyhow, and he loved us. So, but we're not talking about perfect people here. There's an old Keith Green song that says, nobody's perfect except for the Lord, even, even the best got to fall. Let's remember that whenever we're using human examples. Human beings are not perfect. Jesus is perfect. But human beings can still give us a way of seeing and understanding how to live out God's word. So the first question I ask myself is, what did I learn from my dad about how to love God? Remember Jesus in giving us an understanding of what is the Christian faith, 
What does it mean to be his follower? It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's a deep and a profound thing in our life. If we're going to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind, that means it's going to be a complete loving of God. It involves all of us. The very word love that Jesus uses in this text is the Greek word agape. There's different words in Greek for how to describe love. We take love and we mean everything from I love my wife to I love my kids to I love the Boston Celtics until they lost the other day. And so many of our things are circumstantial. Agape love is not that. Love, no matter what the circumstances are. It's Jesus dying on the cross. He wasn't sitting on the cross saying, this is just a beautiful day. I'm so glad I get to do this. It's rather a deep, profound, unconditional love. Then as Jesus goes on, he says, the reason it's our all-encompassing being, it's through our heart, our soul, and our mind. Our heart is where we feel. It's our deep connection with someone else. And so sometimes somebody will say, well, I don't feel loving towards another person. Spend time praying for them. Spend time with them. Get to know them better. And pretty soon the feelings start coming around. That's just a reality of life in general. That's what the Bible teaches about how to make changes. The Holy Spirit works in our heart to change who we are, but the Holy Spirit works to change our lives when we start making those decisions. We see the same thing with somebody who they buy something and pretty soon they're spending time with it, they're, they're taking care of it, and pretty soon they have this emotional connection. I use the example of running. I didn't used to feel like running, but I would do it, and I would do it until the feelings come around. That's what Jesus is talking about, our heart. Spend time with the Lord in prayer, and you're going to want to spend time with the Lord in prayer. Spend time reading your Bible, and you're going to want to spend time reading your Bible. So we learn to love God with our hearts. Our soul is our very being, all of who we are, encompassing everything. It means we don't have these secret little compartments in our life where we say, well, God's in everything else but not here. It means that God and our love for God needs to be all-encompassing, and we need to let God into every part of our life, which is hard for many of us to do. We talked about that a few weeks ago and struggles I've had in my own life, and we all have those kind of areas where we try to keep God out until God's light finally shines in and we start realizing that we're always going to need grace and forgiveness, but God's relationship with us can cover every part of our life. And then, of course, the Bible and Jesus here is teaching we must love God with our mind. That literally means have our mind renewed. That's one reason why hopefully we come to worship, so we can hear God's word and hear it proclaimed and and hear it kept before us, but it's also so that we start reading the Bible ourselves and starting our day on our knees and giving our day to God and reading Scripture and taking devotional thoughts into our minds so that all the stuff that clutters our mind and and pushes us in different directions starts getting set aside, and our minds start getting renewed, and so our minds start loving God. But what did I learn about that from my dad? As a kid growing up, and I grew up with my daddy, I called him daddy to the day he died. Somebody in one of my churches said, Stan, you're in your 40s, why do you call your mom mommy and your dad daddy? I said, easy, because they're mommy and daddy. What did I learn from my daddy? I learned from my dad that he accepted Christ at an early age. He went to a revival service, and he grew up in Quincy. 
And at this revival service, he was in, everybody was invited to come forward and give their life to Jesus. And little five-year-old Ralph Cushing went running down to the altar and gave his life to Jesus. Now that presented a problem in his life. Because although he had been in the church, he was in a Baptist church, which meant now he, as a believer, was going to be baptized. He went to his pastor the next Sunday and he said, I accepted Jesus last week, I'd like to be baptized. And the pastor said to him, you're not old enough. My dad used to tell the story. He said he literally had to argue to get somebody to baptize him. Because people said, oh no, honey, you need to wait till you're older till you understand what you did and what you mean. And he finally was at another revival service and he said there was an evangelist and they were all baptizing and he went up and he said, I want to be baptized. And as a little kid, less than six years old, my dad chose to be baptized and they baptized him. Because my dad learned from an early age that God loved him and his life was claimed by Jesus. And even when his mind wasn't fully able to comprehend the deeper things of theology that he certainly did later as a pastor, early in his life, he just knew that he loved God and God loved him. Now, I say he grew up in a Baptist home. That's kind of interesting. He did. They attended Central Baptist up in Quincy. Some people still know where that church is, and we've had actually members who have come from that church here who have attended here. But that was in the morning because, you see, his dad was Baptist. His mom was Pentecostal. That meant they went to a Baptist church in the morning and at night they all got in a car and they went to Chelsea to a Pentecostal church. So he had a nice, quiet Baptist church where they would have altar calls and preaching and at night they'd be raising their hand and hooting and hollering. And the thing is about my dad, he couldn't sing. He was the most out-of-tone singer I've ever heard, but he learned early. It didn't matter because he was going to make a joyful noise under the Lord and he did it to his dying day because he learned to love God. Because of his love for, for worship and, and being in the presence of Christians, he always loved going to see an evangelist. And I don't know if any of you know the name Amy Semple McPherson. She's the one who started the Four Square Church. She used to hold revival services at Boston Garden. And my dad, any time once he was old enough to drive, would take the car and drive up to the Boston Garden and he loved to go here and be in those services. He was a student at Eastern Nazarene College. It was right on the back. My, parent, my dad literally grew up the fence, and there was Eastern Nazarene College. So here there's Baptist Pentecostals attending a Nazarene College. Go figure that one out. And one of the requirements of going to school is you had to go to worship Sunday morning and Sunday night. And he went to and got to know the president, Mr. G.B. Williamson, and went into his office and said, when they're doing revivals at the... Boston Garden, I'm not going to be going to evening services here. I'm going to go up to the Boston Garden. And the president said, oh, you can't do that. You have to go to church. And he said, oh, I'm doing that and taking other people with me. We're all going to worship. And they made an exception, and they let these students pile in my dad's car, and they'd all go up to the revival services because my dad loved to be in an expressive place where people were worshiping God, and there was an enthusiasm and excitement because it touched his life. Years later, when he came out to the Dakotas, we didn't have anything like the Boston Garden, but we had our own version of a Pentecostal revival service by a guy named Lowell Lundstrom. And Lowell, eventually, he started a, um, Assemblies of God Bible College in Enderlin, North Dakota. But we got to know the Lundstrom family because my dad would invite him in to do revival services into our little town or into the next town over and work with the other pastors. 
And I remember one of the early times that I saw my father getting into worship and how important it was. It was after Lowell had preached and the altar call was done and the music was over and my dad was laughing and crying all at the same time. And I knew, I was a kid, but I knew there was something real there. He understood what it means to love God with his entire heart. He also understood that the Bible is God's word and is to be treated with sacredness and reverence. And sometimes I think we forget that. My mom and dad wouldn't put anything on a Bible. If I would set something on top of a Bible, they would take it right off and they'd say, no, you don't do that. It's God's word. It's to be treated with some reverence. And when a new Bible would be given to my dad, he wouldn't open it like this because he was afraid he was going to bend the pages. He would blow each page apart so that he didn't damage the pages as he was getting to know his new Bible. I always had seen him do that. Even if he gave a gift to someone else, he would do that. And he was an old elderly gentleman with his brain ravaged from Alzheimer's and he spent his last Christmas in our home. And I didn't know what else to get my dad for Christmas, so I bought him a new Bible. And I watched him carefully blow the pages of the Bible. Because he loved God, and he loved God's Word. And he wanted to know it better, and he always wanted to embrace it in his life. And he knew the Bible better than anybody I've ever known. He just did. He just studied it. He read it all the time. You'd always see my dad reading Scripture. But when people would go to church with my father, they never really talked about his sermons. I've never really heard anybody say, you know, your dad's sermon really touched me. But you know what did? His prayers. Sometimes my dad's prayer would last longer than his sermon. He'd pray for 20 minutes. He'd pray because he knew Jesus and he was talking to God. And he was interceding for people. And he had this friend that he wanted you to know and he wanted everybody to understand that God was present. And so people would love to hear my dad pray for them. I even remember the last time my sister and I were out visiting. My dad had now moved back to the Dakotas and he was in a nursing home. And he got to the point where he couldn't really carry a conversation on with my dad. I tried. I spent an afternoon with him and I kept walking with him around in different parts of the, of the home, and, and I was crying. It was really tough. It was a hard, hard moment. But for some reason, we went into the, to like the family room where he went, and he sat down. And his Bible was sitting there. And I picked it up, and I said, Daddy, would you read this to me? And he took it, and he started reading, and he read as clear as anything. It was a miracle. It was amazing. My dad couldn't carry on a conversation. I actually had asked my brother and, and sister, did you know daddy can still read the Bible? Then the last day when Lenore and I were coming back to Massachusetts, we met in the little coffee shop that they had in the nursing home. And it was hard. And I didn't know if we were going to see my dad again, and I never did see him alive again. And yet... I always knew how important prayer was to my father. And so I took a chance, and I said, Daddy, would you pray for Lenore and me? And for the next couple of minutes, my dad's mind was completely clear. As he prayed and prayed for our safety as we went from Minnesota back to Massachusetts, he prayed for us by name. 
And I knew that I was in the presence of a man who loved God. He had always loved God. He had a relationship that we're invited to have. He wasn't perfect, folks. He was my dad. I can tell you stories that you'd say, wow, he wasn't a perfect person, but it didn't matter. He loved Jesus, and he was loved by God. And that's what Jesus tells us, to understand what it means to have a relationship with God, to understand what we're going to talk about in Ten Commandments. These are not boxes to check off. These are ways to enhance our relationship with God so we understand what it means to have that relationship, that personal relationship, where Jesus is our Savior, he's our friend. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us and walks beside us wherever we go, that no matter what's going on, if somebody's going through trouble, we don't say, oh, I can't do anything. We know exactly what we can do. We can pray to our Savior for them. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But what did I learn from my dad about loving your neighbor and how to love your neighbor? Jesus says, the second commandment is just like the first. Having understood that we love God, you should and you shall. He didn't say should, he said shall. I like that word. It's not an option. I remember an old pastor telling me one time when I first became a pastor, never tell people what they shall do. Make suggestions. Well, Jesus doesn't make a suggestion here. He says, you shall love your neighbor. He's not suggesting it to any of us. He's telling us, this is how to live. Once again, the word agape appears. Agape, unconditional love. Love not based on how we feel about someone else. Love not based on how someone else has treated us or, or whether we like other people. It's also interesting that the word you is singular. I say that because I'm not sure we're always aware of this, but in first person, we know the difference between I and we, right? In third person, we know the difference between her or him, singular, or them. But second person in English, you can't tell the difference. If I say, you should go have Kona ice after worship, you don't know if I'm talking to the whole congregation or just one of you. Now, that's not true, I guess, down south, because they say, you and y'all. And it's not true in Lowell, Massachusetts, where I had my first church, because they say, you and yous. It's also not that way in Greek. There's a different word for you singular and you plural. And Jesus here is saying, you singular shall love you, your neighbor. It's not abstract. We don't get to say, oh, Jesus is teaching me that I should just be kind to everybody. No, no, no. Jesus is saying, you know who your neighbors are. You know who the people are in your life. If you want to understand a relationship with God, you shall learn to love your neighbor, and you shall put that into practice, and that shall permeate your life. That's true for you. That's true for me. That's true for followers of Christ. That's one of the hardest things about following Jesus, isn't it? He makes life kind of uncomfortable for us sometimes. Because sometimes we'd rather be secular and we go, well, the world is all divided, so can't I just be a divided Christian? Jesus does not give us that option. Again, 20th century theologians have been helpful here because they pointed out that in loving people, we still have to have boundaries. And so they pointed out something that we started to realize in the history of the interpretation of this text, that you don't have to love everybody equally, you have to love everybody similarly. Let me explain. 
if I'm out on the playground and there's a child going down the slide, I'm going to treat them a particular way. If I'm standing in the store and somebody's got a gun and they're holding up the store, I don't have to treat them exactly the same way that I treat the child on the playground, but there still has to be a genuine concern for everyone, including that person, and that can mean they get arrested and they go to jail. But it's a love that has to be similar. It has to be how we are filled with love for others and how we learn to treat people and how we learn to act towards people and how our heart gets changed towards others. Soram Kierkegaard said, the very act of loving someone else has to be self-denial. Has to come out of our being willing to give of ourselves. I learned that from my dad. He didn't do it perfectly, but he loved his neighbor and he knew who his neighbor was. He was sent by God out of the comfort of New England to Minnesota to eventually North Dakota to as far a rural of an area as you can imagine to one of the poorest counties in the country to a church where they weren't even able to pay his salary and yet he knew that God had sent him and he was there to make neighbors and to love people and to care for people. It wasn't about what made him feel good or our family feel good. And sometimes we don't maybe look at this enough as a family, but my dad and my mom went to places that is hard for me to comprehend. But it was because of the fact that they were sent there by God and they understood what it meant to be sent. As a pastor and as a Christian out on the prairie, my dad demonstrated what it means to love people. Because you see, this morning when I got up, the app had already told me that it was going to be raining all morning, and I got a text from Doug who said, you know, better cancel Launch Our Church. And so we let everybody know the Launch Our Church was going to be canceled. But it didn't exist that way in the 1940s and 50s when my parents went out on the prairie. They didn't have an app to tell them what was going to happen. So you, they lived in town, and all of a sudden a blizzard would take place. And what happens? you got people stranded in town. My mom and dad would take them into their home. Some of my happy memories as a childhood were getting to know people who now became part of our family that I didn't previously know that just got taken into our home because that's how my dad and my mom treated people. When my dad wasn't a pastor, he went out as a pastor, but they literally got to a point where they couldn't pay him at all. He realized he also had to take care of his family, so he went back to Minot State, and he got a teaching degree, and he became a high school teacher, and he learned to love those high school students. I know he loved them because he spoke about them the rest of his life. His days when he was teaching high school were not secondary to his days being a pastor. He loved those kids. He prayed for them. He also, because of the fact that this was this little town like Benedict, North Dakota, go look it up. My dad would go in and he would do drama in the high school because they didn't have a drama program. That meant that he would order plays and have them sent out from Boston and get kids and after school they would put on plays through the school because they didn't have a drama, school, a drama program. Same way my mom, that's why my mom became a classical teacher on the prairie. There wasn't classical music out there, and my mom was trained as a classical musician, so she taught kids how to play the piano. That was something they offered as a gift to people because people mattered, because my dad cared about his neighbor. 
I remember a time when a family had run out of gas. They were driving through the Dakotas, and they got stuck somewhere, and they had no money, no gas, and they didn't know what to do. And they talked to somebody. I don't ever know who they did. And they said, oh, go see Reverend Cushing. He'll figure it out for you. And now a family showed up that had no money, nothing, three kids, and my mom and dad did what they did. They just took them into our home, and they lived with us for a while as my mom sewed clothes for these kids, as my dad found jobs for this gentleman to work, to earn some money, as my dad personally fixed their car, because my dad was also a good mechanic, because he understood that Jesus says, learn to be a neighbor. Learn to be a neighbor. Learn to love the people who are around you. Learn that the opportunities are always there. You and I have those opportunities every day. Do we drive by somebody and ignore somebody who's struggling? Do we see somebody in the grocery store and, and look down on them because their kids are, are acting out? Or do we genuinely care about other people and learn to be transformed by the way that God works in our lives? When I talk to people about my dad, and I have many opportunities with, over the years, one of the things that I'm always reminded of is when we moved to the little town of Winemere, there were two Lutheran churches, a Catholic church, and a Methodist church. And my dad realized that religiously the town was kind of divided. So he came up with a Ralph Cushing idea. And he, went, he bought a 10-speed bike. And then he challenged the other ministers in town to all buy 10-speed bikes. And then he got them all to ride around every evening from 5 o'clock till 6 o'clock right before dinner the ministers would ride their bike around town and around in the country to show unity as pastors that they all got to know each other and cared about each other. Because my dad knew who his neighbor was. And the other pastors all became really good friends. It's how I got to know the Catholic priest in town. Even though he lived across the street. Because you see, religious divides in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, and even into the 70s were pretty deep in our society. And there are people who are trailblazers of saying, we need to learn to love each other. I'm sorry I've said so much, but I'm still going to tell you more. My dad also understood that his first neighbor, and it's true for every one of us, is our family. Hear that loud and clear? Our first neighbor is our family. It's our spouse, our kids, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews. It's the people that God has put in our home. Because sometimes you can have people who are really altruistic and think of everybody out there, but in their own home, they're not doing the things to show love. I knew Daddy loved me. And so did every kid in our family. I even remember the day that, that my dad met Regina. We were barely dating. And I said, hi, Daddy, I'd like you to meet my new girlfriend. And he said, come over and give your future father-in-law a big hug. I asked him later, we were barely dating. How did you know we were going to get married? He goes, I don't know, I just knew it. And he welcomed her in as a part of the family, because that's what my dad did. When I came out to seminary, Regina and I had no money. We had no money. We moved out by UPS because we couldn't afford to get a U-Haul truck. And we came out here not even knowing how we were going to make it, but we knew that God was sending us out here. My dad didn't want us to have to pay for school. We had to pay as a couple for, for our living expenses. And so my dad took on another job. He had always been a piano tuner, but he was able to do that as a second career, kind of. And he made it front and center for those next years and explained to the congregation that he'd be using his extra time going out tuning pianos to help pay for his son's education. 
That's not easy on the prairie, folks. That's, you're not living in Plymouth, Massachusetts with a bunch of people living around. This is farm country, which meant he had to go out in the country and knock on doors and ask people if they had a piano because he'd like to come in if they would let him and tune their piano at a good rate so he could help pay for his son's education. You see, loving people takes work. It means that we honor the relationships in our lives. Recently, a friend reached out to me and he said, I just need to call you and tell you how much your dad meant to me. I was just thinking about it, and I just wanted you to know what a great example of a Christian gentleman he was. This is Father's Day. Can we honor the men who learn to live and honor other people? The men who love God and love others, if you have ones in your life, can you thank them for that? Can you and I as men realize we have a responsibility of how to live? It goes for women too. It goes for all of us. But Jesus says, do you want to understand the Christian faith? Do we want to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus? We love God and we love people. How about you? Do you love God? Do you love others? Doesn't mean you always feel good about them. Remember, the stuff that we put our time and attention into, those feelings will come around. How about driving your car when people aren't very nice? Do you genuinely love them and pray a prayer for them of God bless them and help them get through? How about the kids in church or those who we genuinely have difficulties with? Loving God and loving people. But you know, there's one last thing that sometimes we miss in this text. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. That means we need to understand we're not junk. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, every single one of us. God chose to create you and chose to create me. We were created by the master himself. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. The Bible says we were knitted together in our mother's womb. And yet sometimes people, we go through life and act like we don't matter. No, we matter. In order to love others, we do need to have love for ourselves and be able to treat ourselves well. Martin Luther did say we think too much of ourselves and so we need to learn to think of others. But I also like Elizabeth Moltmann Wendell who said a few years back, especially to women, Women realize this. If you're always spending all of your time thinking about others, you also need to learn to say yes to yourself. It's important. Jesus didn't say, become a doormat and just let everybody trample all over you. Realize that how we live matters. We are God's creation. We have a relationship with our Savior who gave his life for us. We're forgiven. We're filled with grace. We make mistakes. We love God. We love others. But we have to matter. I learned that from my dad also. He loved life. He loved life. And he loved the things that he enjoyed. I often ask people this question, what's your favorite experience eating pizza? It provokes all kinds of interesting conversations. Sometimes it becomes about pizza, sometimes it becomes about relationships. I ask that question because usually somebody will then come back and say, well, Pastor Stan, what's your favorite experience having pizza? And I say, oh, I'm so glad you asked me that. You see, my dad grew up in Quincy and he learned to play tennis. And he, I grew up in North Dakota where there was no tennis court until they put one in my senior year in high school. And so my dad taught me to play tennis. But we had to drive 25 miles away or 60 miles away to play tennis. 
It was 25 miles to the closest swimming pool in the town I grew up in. We were in a rural area. Well, when we would play tennis, we'd also play tennis when we went on vacation. And when we'd go on vacation, we would drive all day, and, and then we'd stop. And because I was the youngest of five, I had many years with just my mom, my dad, and myself. And we'd stop, we'd eat dinner, we'd check into a hotel room, and then my dad and I would go out on a search for a tennis court that had lights on it. And we'd play tennis that evening. We found them all over the place. One time we were in a town in Wisconsin, we were staying in a hotel, and we found a tennis court, and we probably played till 10, 11 o'clock at night. Then we were driving back to the hotel, and we drove by a pizza place that was just hopping, just filled with people. And so we stopped, and we went in, and they had these big pitchers of Pepsi and ginger ale and, and great pizza. And my dad and I had the conversation of all conversations. I got to know my dad in ways that night that I don't know I'd ever had before. And I learned why he wanted to play tennis with me. He cared about me, but he also was a 60-year-old man, and he wanted to take care of his body, and he wanted to be in good shape. And he loved doing something he'd loved his whole life. And he told me about what he enjoyed about our playing tennis and why it mattered so much to him. He talked to me about how he loved to go hiking and how as a kid he used to hike Mount Washington. And we had conversations about how he had fond memories of camping as a child. And I realized that sometimes we can see people like our parents and see them sort of in light of what they do for us, but people are human beings and they have their own wants and desires. And my dad wanted to always take care of his body because it was a temple of the Holy Spirit. And he read that in 1 Corinthians and he knew that he was a temple and we were a temple. And therefore, my dad tried to honor God in every part of his life the best that he could. I also know that Later in his life, when he couldn't go out for walks outside as much, it was freezing cold, he bought a treadmill. <laughs> and I remember talking to him about how excited he was when he could increase the amount of time he could walk on the treadmill. Because you see, he understood what the Bible teaches. We need to love ourselves. We matter. Hear that, folks? In order to love someone else, maybe that's not your issue in life. Maybe where you're struggling is about yourself and saying, am I really worth it? You are. The Holy Spirit lives in you. Get that? God doesn't put his Holy Spirit in junk. Amen? Oh, I didn't hear that loud enough. God does not put his Holy Spirit in junk. Amen? Amen. And so we need to understand that. That's why I want to tell you one last thing about Daddy. He only wore Brooks Brothers three-piece suits. <laughs> Think of that. You're a farmer in rural North Dakota, and up comes your new pastor, and he shows up in a three-piece Brooks Brothers suit with wingtip shoes on. He also drove a Cadillac. He would have people say, maybe we pay the Methodist minister too much. He's driving a Cadillac and wearing an expensive suit. And he goes, no, no. I like my three-piece suit, and I like my Cadillac. I asked him one time, Daddy, why do you drive a Cadillac? He goes, because I can afford it. It's okay, folks, to love life and to see the gifts that God gives to us. To honor people and honor God and realize that's what we're here for, to live a balanced life. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you know that God would do anything for you? He did. He gave you his son. 
who we watched suffer and die on a cross so that you and I could have life and have forgiveness. Do you love your neighbor? Your neighbor who's unlovable, who finds you just as unlovable? (laughs) Sometimes it's hard. But Jesus doesn't teach us that life is always going to be easy. And you love yourself. You learn that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Because this Father's Day, if we can just learn one thing from this text, it's that God wants us to understand how to have a balanced life. When we do, then the Bible says that we can discern God's will for us. You've heard about my dad being a Pentecostal and a Baptist, but how did he become a Methodist? Sometimes people walk away and they say, there's something missing. Well, when you love God and you love people, you start seeing the things that happen in your life as God's will and you stop blaming everybody else. And that's also what I learned from my dad. When things would happen, he wouldn't see them as coincidences, he'd see them as God incidences, amen? When things happen, we start realizing God has messages for us. And my dad had left the ministry and couldn't afford to be a pastor and he was teaching school And over the summer, he would sell insurance. It was through that he also taught, I'm drawing a blank on his name, David, the coach, the basketball coach. Oh, um, Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson. He taught Phil Jackson how to play chess. That's a sermon for another day. True story. Phil Jackson's dad was Assemblies of God pastor, and Phil Jackson's dad and my dad were friends. Well, one day, my dad was out driving, and he's out selling insurance, And he was in a restaurant, and there was a Methodist district superintendent who came over and said, you're Ralph Cushing. He said, yeah. He said, somebody told me about you, that you're a minister without a church. And my dad said, yep, I am. I'm a Baptist, Pentecostal, who went to a Nazarene college. And the Methodist district superintendent said, well, that'll work out here on the prairie. We'd like you to be a Methodist pastor. And he goes like, Methodist minister? I've never thought of being a Methodist. He goes, well, we need pastors out here on the prairie, and sometimes what you get is you get to serve like three or four churches, and hey, some of them might be Nazarene and Presbyterian. We don't know what you're going to serve because we just put charges together, and we'd really like you to consider being a Methodist pastor. Now, my dad didn't see coincidences in life. He believed that God was in his life in everything. So he came home that day, and he said to my mom, I was two years old at the time, They were living in a little town called Drake, North Dakota. And he said, Lenora, something really odd happened today. A Methodist district superintendent, I don't really know anything about the Methodist church, but asked me if I'd like to be a pastor of Methodist churches, and my mom started to cry. She said, I was listening to a radio program today, and I was listening to a minister who said, pray for the desires of your heart. And she said, the desire of my heart is for you to get back in the pulpit and be a pastor. And they prayed and they gave God glory for a new chapter in their life. And so I was raised in Methodist churches. You see, when we love God and we love people, we start seeing God working in our life. Amen? We start seeing God's hand and God's guidance all around us. This message is a Father's Day message and it is not about my dad. It's about an awesome God who gives us examples all around us of how to live our lives when we learn to trust in God, when we learn to love God with all of our being and learn to do the hard work of loving others, it is amazing where Jesus shows up. 
You see, the Holy Spirit is working in your life and working in my life, and God just wants us to be open and to be receptive and to give God the glory. As we close in prayer, let's pray that we could learn to love more completely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts. Help us to love the way you've loved us, never as much, but in proportion. For you do so much for us and our families and our lives. Help us to receive that and live in it and help us to share it with others. We thank you, for example, in all of our lives, the people who've shown us what it means to have their life committed to you. Help us to honor that when we see it in others. But help us also in our own lives to seek to be more Christ-like. For it is in your name we pray.